Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by Battleground.eu. Lots of stuff happening today, and who knows if we'll get to all of it, but I just want to moot the following idea, Josh, and I don't know if you're hip to this, but things don't seem to be going like great for the UK. I was wondering if maybe you wanted to join the United States. I mean, how much worse could things be going? Well, we could have access to AR-15s and vast amounts of crystal meth. Oh, okay, fair enough. But I and no health system. Oh, oh, right, all right. Yeah, now you're just piling on. But I will say that Winston Churchill in the dark days of 1940 did actually moot the idea that there could be a sort of U.S.-U.K. reconnection, maybe under U.S. auspices, who knew? But, I mean, apparently it was possible that the sunlit uplands were somewhere around Cleveland Heights. Who can say? Who can say? I mean, in some ways we have kind of an unofficial status as an extra U.S. state anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, the Europeans don't want your shit, so I'm just saying. I guess the big thing, well, there's many big things. One of them that I think we should probably get to, first of all, is Liz Truss's freshly released mini-budget, which, shockingly to say, I'm, I have to say I'm truly surprised, is a tremendous giveaway to people at the upper end of the income distribution. Josh, I'm sure you share my utter shock and surprise at this turn of events. Yes, I'm deeply, deeply shocked. Liz Truss has turned out to be a deranged libertarian, as she was when she contributed to Britannia Unchained 10 years ago. The tax cuts we've seen, it's, it is just a massive pig out, basically, for the super rich. You know, lowest corporation tax rate in the G7. The top rate of income tax has been abolished. Yeah. And on top of that, they're just throwing money at the energy industry. So Yeah, the subsidy thing was not surprising, but I mean, part of a larger bad idea that seems to underlie her whole project, which is that tax cuts can encourage, can promote economic growth. And there really, I mean, if you just look at the scientific literature about this, there isn't a shred of evidence that tax cuts can promote growth in any more than a sort of very marginal degree. So, I mean, it's something that was tried during the Reagan administration, although the Reagan administration was really more about Keynesianism as run by Darth Vader. So we're going to inject money into the economy by just pumping gazillions of dollars into the defense budget. But I mean, it's funny, too, because it, in a way, is part of her channeling of Margaret Thatcher, except that Margaret Thatcher, I mean, first of all, people, I think, misremember what Margaret Thatcher is all about. And maybe you can clarify some of that. But also, Margaret Thatcher was operating in a much different environment. There were things to denationalize then, which there aren't now, like the British government has managed to divest itself of all its useful public holdings, so to speak, or most of them. And now, I mean, the biggest issue in privatization is, will another train plow into a train station because of mismanagement of the rail system? Yeah, indeed. When Thatcher came to power, taxes were much higher. The state was much bigger in terms of economic management, much bigger. Of course, the actual size of the state didn't really decline, which is also true under Reagan. It just changed shape. Yeah, there were things to privatize in the early 80s, just to kind of throw into the market to generate some kind of, you know, economic growth. At the same time, you had China opening up, you know, that vast virgin territory for capitalism. It provided a vast amount of human labor. It allowed the offshoring of production on a huge scale. There's not really much room for that now because it's all been kind of done. The system is pretty exhausted. They're running on fumes. And it's pretty clear from this mini budget that, you know, they are desperate. 
are just throwing tax cuts at it and hoping for the best. You know, this isn't going to bring down inflation because it's being driven by the supply chain crisis, the energy crisis, plus the war in Ukraine. Brexit hasn't helped, you know, and on the back of that, you've got a profit spiral, you know, profit price spiral rather than a wage price spiral. Yeah, I mean, it seems like it's being driven to a great degree by a lot of exogenous factors. Also, over and above the 40-some million pounds, I nearly said dollars in tax cuts. The last I saw, the pound is trading at about $1.11, so parity could be right around the corner. And actually, it was funny, I was thinking about this when I was driving around the other day, and then I saw an article in one of the big papers, The Guardian, probably along these very lines, in which some financial person was saying, well, the first thing I would do is short bet the pound. And I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is what happened in the 1990s. George Soros started short betting the bot, the Thai currency. And then a lot of other people who were like, well, I might not be that smart, but George Soros is. And if he thinks that the bot is overvalued, that makes it overvalued in a certain sense. And the same thing is likely to happen to the pound. I mean, they're talking about 72 billion pounds in new borrowing to cover the shortfalls that are going to happen from the degradation of tax receipts. This is all taking place in what's certain to be in the near future a, a global recession. I mean, it's well established by recent economic history that trying to cut your way out of an economic downturn just doesn't work, really just exacerbates the problem. I mean, it's funny how in the United States, I don't know if this is really the case in, in Great Britain, but there's a total freak out about inflation going on in the United States such that the Federal Reserve just increased the base rate by three quarters of a point, which is a massive jump. Inflation is a serious problem for for creditors, for people who have vast amounts of wealth that they're hoarding, you know, and that is the key key part of their base. And this is why the Bank of England is also raising interest rates, just like the Federal Reserve. They're effectively doing it to tank the economy so they can drive up unemployment, I think. That's my theory anyway. Pretty cynical, but... Basically, the representatives of the rentier state are concerned about inflation. They've been, they were concerned about inflation when it was 1%. They were concerned about inflation when it was effectively negative. Yeah, and in this case, it's clear that they're just shoring up their base as well. Um, the attempt to dampen the impact of these interest rates on the, on the housing market is very clear in that regard. They're offering tax relief to first-time buyers. They're raising the threshold for stamp duty, that kind of thing, in a desperate attempt to keep the bubble going. But we'll see which is more effective, these tax cuts or the interest rate increase. Meanwhile, the Labour Party, always on point. Isn't a Labour Party conference going on about now? Yep. I'm sure they're brimming with new and, and positive solutions to recoup their position in British politics. Yeah, Starmer is committed to reinstating the top rate of tax, which is 45%, which is just bringing back the Osborne policy. Gordon Brown had a top rate of 50%. Margaret Thatcher's top rate was 60%. And before she cut it to 60%, it was 83%. You know, so that gives you a sense of where we are historically. There's talk of some kind of green energy strategy, but I don't know how much serious meat there will be on the bones of that policy. It could just end up being some rhetoric about developing wind and solar. It's not bad. It just doesn't really address the problem, it doesn't seem like. Also, there's been some new developments in the whole Labour Files thing, which fill me in on that. Yeah, Labour Files is a documentary series by Al Jazeera. They basically secured thousands of documents internally from the Labour Party. It's the biggest leak in British political history, at least that's what they're calling it. People like Peter O'Born are involved, the conservative journalist who is pretty impressive on this kind of issue. And it's revealed the extent of 
sabotage and conniving by the labor bureaucracy basically you know it shows how they kind of smeared activists had them expelled had them suspended it also shows the degree to which the anti-semitism crisis if you want to call it that was confected by bureaucrats and by people who really weren't dealing with the problem because of course there was a real problem we're not saying there wasn't but they didn't deal with it and then they exaggerated it and blamed corbyn for it the anti-semitism crisis i mean the unfortunate thing, or, or one of many unfortunate things you might say about it, is that it, in fact, made dealing with the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and in British society generally, British political culture generally, which is there, it's a thing, but the way that it was weaponized by Starmer and his people made dealing with that much more difficult. I mean, it made it much less likely that significant steps would be taken, or effective steps would be taken, to really address the problem. and. I mean, anti-Semitism is something that happens in the left. I don't think there's any serious person denying it. Now, serious is the key adjective here, and there's plenty of unserious people out there associated with the left, sadly enough. It would be nice if the Labour Party could take a real look at itself and really try and get itself right on this issue, which they've just been completely out of whack on for the best part of a decade, it looks like. Yeah, unfortunately, the institutions of the party are still very much compromised by political factionalism. The Labour right is in the driving seat, and they don't want to look in the mirror on these issues. So we have a situation where Jewish leftists are being suspended and expelled from the party left, right and centre on usually very trumped up grounds. You know, and there's very little coverage of this in the mainstream media. I think you're five times more likely to be accused of anti-Semitism in Labour if you're Jewish. Well, there's an irony for you. Shifting topics just slightly, I happen to be reading the New Left Review sidecar blog, and there's a piece in there by Wolfgang Strake about whom there's plenty to say, and we will in just a minute here, but he referenced an interview, which I had only read sort of in a kind of skim form, from July that Wolfgang Schäuble gave to the Welt am Sonntag, a conservative German newspaper, in which he mooted the idea that what needed to happen in European politics was for Germany and France to form a kind of like dual block in which Germany would bankroll the French nuclear arsenal. And of course, this creates all kinds of problems with respect to NATO, with respect to the United States, with respect to the rest of Europe. One of his solutions to this was bringing the Poles on board. So you'd have this recreation of Central Europa, but on a sort of east-west axis with the idea that because the Poles are fairly close to the United States, this would be sort of a way of getting the United States on board. It would be a way of Germany getting access to French nuclear targeting information and all kinds of things. It's hard exactly to know where this idea would go, particularly with respect to the EU. How would Brussels respond to this? I mean, essentially, it amounts to creating a sort of NATO's mini-me with Germany, France, and Poland, which would in some way be in a better position. I mean, maybe he seemed to also move the idea that Russia, obviously post-conflict and assuming they don't use a nuclear weapon, could also be brought into some sort of orbit like this. I mean, it's bizarre for so many reasons, not the least of which was that the Law and Justice Party just submitted a bill to the Germans a couple of months ago for reparations for the Second World War, which the Germans politely said, nein danke. It's a completely bonkers idea. I was reading this and I was thinking to myself, like, Schäuble used to have a reputation as a sort of policy-oriented, reality-based politician, obviously of a sort of conservative stripe, but this is just 
I mean, it was, you know, when I went back and read the interview, I mean, whatever else you can say about Strike, and once again, there's plenty to say about him, that he really got this right. It's just an absolutely bizarre suggestion. Yeah, it sounds like fantasy war planning. Yeah, I mean, I was very surprised, actually, the, the suggestion of uh, France, Germany, and Poland, but it does make sense when you include US influence in all of this. But I think, like, wouldn't France be the unreliable partner in all of that, potentially? Their record of occasional disobedience to US policy is pretty interesting, even if overplayed sometimes. Sure, the, but the, the whole sort of heritage of Gaulism in that respect certainly hasn't gone away. And the, I mean, the polls, as far as I can tell, and I mean, this is not particularly deep-cut analysis on my part, but their approach to NATO seems to be very much what Hug Ismay's approach to NATO was, keep the Americans in, the Russians out, and the Germans down. Clearly, there's still some hurt feelings in Poland based on what happened in the Second War, and why wouldn't there be? But also, the, I mean, the, the reparations thing was sorted out by treaty decades ago. So, I mean, that's obviously a non-starter. I think it's more sort of law and justice trying to get some purchase on the elections that I think are supposed to happen next year in Poland. Just to, to get to a related issue, Wolfgang Strake is a really interesting guy in a lot of respects. For people who don't know, he was a German sociologist who came up studying the economic institutions, the OECD. He came up in the kind of Frankfurt School tradition, although he was, I mean, interestingly, if you read his early work, he seems more influenced by Polanyi than he did by Marx, which, I mean, I don't think is unreasonable necessarily, but... Then he was the director of the Max Planck Institute until 2014. And he wrote this really interesting book, Buying Time, which I won't summarize because it's a complex argument, but just to sort of present a very oversimplified idea, what he said was that the economies, and, and really when he talks about capitalism, what he's really talking about is the OECD in North America. He never, never mentions Asia, as far as I can tell. But that with the sort of petering out of the post-war boom, the leading economies had to kind of come up with, or, or capitalism writ large, had to come up with ways to kind of stabilize itself. And the first way was in the 1970s, kind of inflation. But then people decided that they didn't like inflation, i.e. people, holders of debt. So then they came up with sovereign debt in the 1980s, and that sort of petered out. And then they came up with private debt. And his argument is basically that these solutions are all petering out. And what you get is what he calls the consolidation state which is a state, and the EU is a perfect exemplar of this, the state whose only purpose really is to make sure that everyone pays their debts. It's like that moment in Repo Man with Harry Dean Stanton about where he's like driving along with Emilio Estevez and he's kind of going crazy and he's like, you know, somebody could just find out what people owe and make them pay it. You know, that's like, that's what the state is now as far as Drake is concerned, which in a lot of respects is not wrong, but he's also got some big problems and, uh, Every time, I think it's funny that he keeps getting published. They seem to, to, to really love him around the New Left Review, but he's said and done some things that I think it's funny that, that don't seem to, haven't seemed to kind of chase him out of that realm, so to speak. Yeah, I think he's seen as uh, a provocative and interesting figure by that crowd, because I mean, I can't see how they're on board with certain aspects of his politics. And he's a kind of left social democrat, but he's, he has conservative tendencies as part of that. Uh, if you read Buying Time, there's some interesting sections where he comments about women entering the workforce and how this uh, supposedly displaced male labour, for example. And I'm not sure how far he would take the political implications of that, but it's you can, you can see the conservative aspect there, I think. And his attitude towards immigration and borders is quite similar in that regard. Yeah, I mean, OK, in a, in a way, he's kind of like Starmer in the sense that he has sort of leftist tendencies, but also rightist tendencies. And he, I mean, he was part of that whole Aufstehung 
kind of splinter from Dulinka that was led by Sara Wagenknecht, whose operative premise was the thing that's really missing from the left wing of German politics is opposition to immigration. Like, we're going to cut the legs out of AfD by just taking over their right-wing populist anti-immigrant garbage. And he said as much in, in a number of interviews. I mean, it's really kind of, he said some very creepy things. And then, in buying time, he makes this distinction between Staatsvolk and Marktvolk, between sort of like people who are concerned with the kind of legitimation functions of the state, like the population at large, and the segment of the population who are more market-oriented, which he characterizes in this way, which opens itself up plainly to an anti-Semitic reading. I mean, Adam Tooze, who is one of the more perceptive analysts of European history and matters such as this, absolutely reamed him in a review of the subsequent book that he put out, How Capitalism End, for exactly this. I mean, really, the idea that a German critical theorist, a German sociologist, could use a term like Mark Volk and then be surprised when people were like, oh my God, that has lots and lots of anti-Semitic overtones. And Tooze published this article and then Streich wrote a letter in response to which Tooze then, you know, in which Streich said, okay, you know, I just innocently used this term and oh my God, now you're accusing me of being anti-Semite. And then Tooze came back with another response in which he put up a table in which he showed the binaries that indicated how easily this can be read as an anti-Semitic trope. And okay, on the most sympathetic possible reading, say for instance that you think that that Streich isn't an anti-Semite, and that's I'm, I'm comfortable with that as an assumption, then what he is is unbelievably naive, like how he could possibly write these things and not be like, hmm, people might read this as anti-Semitic. It does kind of beggar belief. It brings to mind the example of Paul Embry, who's a far worse figure, a kind of blue labor trade unionist in this country. He said, now, he used the phrase rootless cosmopolitans on Twitter and then claimed that he didn't really know what it meant. You could point to dozens of examples where people use these tropes and these this kind of symbolic language. And, I mean, history is what it is. You can't just sort of say, well, I didn't use it in that way or I didn't mean it in that way or how dare you accuse me of anti-Semitism. The burden is on you not to use anti-Semitic or anti-Semitic adjacent language. And it's unfortunate that Strike decided to double down on it. We were talking about this earlier on with Joel, the editor of The Battleground, and he was mentioning that he used the same language in Jacobin. It's just, it's really unfortunate, particularly because Buying Time is an interesting book. It's got some problems. It's really OECD focused. So he has a very one-dimensional understanding of, of how the world economy works. And he doesn't seem to really understand that there are counter pressures just because European social democracy is kind of spiraling the bowl doesn't mean that there aren't counterpressures out there in the system. So he doesn't really have a solution. Or the solution that he does have is, let's get back to the nation state. I mean, Habermas called him on this and Deuce and lots of other people. By the way, if you're interested in getting in touch with a lot of the controversy about this, the Dutch sociologist Jerome Roos published a piece in Historical Materialism in 2019. I think there was kind of a retrospective on Drake's work and provides a lot of really interesting and useful quotes. And I think it's really even had, as a matter of fact, Tooze accused Gross on Twitter of sugarcoating the situation. So I think that he has a fair claim to, to have reached a certain point of balance, with all due respect to Adam Tooze. Once again, I think that, you know, Strike's book is really interesting and worth reading, both of them. But they're both out on, on Verso, if I recall correctly. But it's just shocking to me that a person who 
comes out of this particular milieu. And I mean, also, there's a kind of look back in an interesting way to the earlier days of the Frankfurt School. I mean, once you sort of lose the idea of the emancipatory potential of European social democracy, then you tend to get into all kinds of unfortunate territory. And I think the perfect example here is Max Horkheimer, who came out very strongly in support of the Vietnam War. And it was because he and Theodore Adorno had engaged in this kind of cultural pessimism, didn't really see a way out on the basis of the post-Weberian Marxist analysis that they were presenting. And so, in a very unfortunate way, made peace with the system as it was, as better than it might become. And I think that's a lot of what Strike is doing. Part of his narrative is this death of European social democracy. Well, okay, fair cop. There are other things in the world, and maybe Kleinstaffelei is not the solution we should be looking for at this point. Yeah, and it is symptomatic of a wider problem of how the European left responds to that breakdown of social democracy and how we respond to the present crisis. Someone like Strike doesn't really have, have the answers, even though he has a very interesting analysis with some problems. Yeah, this is the unfortunate position that we've... I mean, in, in a way, the most interesting thing about his analysis, I think, is the idea of the consolidation state. One thinks in this context of the article that Friedrich von Hayek wrote in, I think, 1931, in which he basically argued that some sort of super-European state would be the best because you could depoliticize the state and stop the unwashed masses from trying to expropriate the wealthy. You could move all the economic decisions into a kind of super-political arena. And that's basically the defining feature of the EU as it exists now. I mean, Streich is a kind of representative of the left Eurosceptic position, which in and of itself, there's a lot to be said for it. But with him, it comes with all this other baggage that people are just like, oh, God, can you not talk about Strike and the whole anti-Semitism thing? Well, it's not our fault. <laughs> He's an adult. He has no business not understanding it. I clearly have respect for a lot of his work, but he just has no business using this kind of language, given who he is and, and the traditions in which he came up. Yeah, and it's odd the New Left Review doesn't seem to have a problem with that. Or maybe they do and they just keep a lid on it because they think he's interesting and he's worth publishing. I mean, I know that many of the editors are left Eurosceptics themselves, but I think most of them support freedom of movement, open borders, they're anti-nationalist. You know, they come out of the New Left, the hint is in the title. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I don't mean to be out here, like, crapping on the, the New Left Review. I'm a subscriber to the New Left Review. I read it every month or every couple of months. But I think you're right that this is really an illustration of the kind of dead end that a certain kind of European social democracy has come to and the big challenge for the left in the current moment. Where is it that we go if we want to preserve these values of inclusivity, if we want to preserve these values of human dignity? I mean, one of the things that Strike engaged in was this idea that immigrants are draining resources away from Europeans, European workers or whatever. There's not a shred of evidence that that's the case. There's a study that came out, I think, in 2017 in the NBER in the United States about how, in fact, if you look at the taxes that immigrants pay, they, in fact, add more to the economy than they cost. I mean, so, and this is, I think, pretty straightforward. And even if it wasn't, what we owe to other human beings is preserving their lives and their dignity. But but also this sort of anti-immigrant thing is based on no evidence whatsoever. Yeah, now Die Linke is in quite a, a bad position from what I've, what I've heard. Is there a possibility of a split? Die Linke is always on the verge of going down the bowl, and it's sort of 
left split off of the Social Democrats when they mixed with the PDS, the Party of Democratic Socialism, which was the former uh, <laughs> Socialist Unity Party, so-called, the, the German East German Communist Party. And the thing is that it kind of occludes matters on the left because there's no possibility of a red-red-green coalition. The Social Democrats and I think the Greens have basically said that they will just never coalitionize with Die Linke. So basically that handcuffs the left in Germany in a lot of respects. So it's interesting to see the Social Democrats have, have improved their position recently. Obviously, they have the chancellorship now. But it is a problem for the left because the idea of coalitionizing with Dulinka is just excluded to court. Yeah, I think it was it 2005, that election. There was, there was technically the possibility of a coalition there, but the SPD completely ruled it out and preferred to go into opposition and let Angela Merkel come to power. That worked out very well. Yeah, well, on the one hand, it did let her get sort of beat up by AfD for several years. But yeah, it's, just, it's a kind of abdication by the Social Democrats. I mean, I understand why they don't want to be in touch with the remnants of the SED, because the SED was revolting. But it is a problem in the German left, for sure, and one that's going to continue to haunt the, the electoral prospects of the SPD, at least for the foreseeable future. Uh, so that's all from us. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.